who I am came from the place and the people and the history and the culture. It's true, wherever you go, you always learn, but it's more about you hear stories from people. Hi, my name is Jenny Chan. Hi, my name is Stephanie Kuo. Hi, my name is Leslie Stone. Hi, my name is Patrick Ball. Hi, my name is Hollis, and you're listening to The Passage. I'm a professional graphic designer. I was born in Hong Kong, but came to the U.S. to San Francisco when I was six years old and uh, lived in San Francisco as a young person, came east to go to college, east coast in the U.S. to go to college and uh, stayed here ever since. So I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. My dad is a paramedic. He drives an ambulance and my mom is an ER nurse. She works in the hospital. Grew up in a sort of nice, quiet, blue collar family in the South. I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Uh, My parents are from Hong Kong and Taiwan, respectively. And I grew up primarily in Hong Kong um, and then left for the U.S. for school I came to Yale for college, but then I ended up coming back for playwriting. Um, And now I'm in the playwriting department at the School of Drama. My girlfriend is born in Taipei. She is a a U.S. citizen, but born in Taipei. Her family, uh, her mother is from Taiwan. Father was raised here in New York. I grew up in New York City. And I I grew up in quite an international family. My father uh, worked at and ran an organization called the Center for Inter-American Relations. So he was very concerned about U.S., Central, and Latin American relations. And then my mother worked for the Museum of Natural History, also in New York. When I was young, I was born in Brazil. Then we moved to France also when I was quite young. And then when I was four years old, my family moved to New York City and stayed there through my formative years. My favorite parts of Hong Kong. Certainly, I would introduce them to my favorite people because uh, so much of Hong Kong is is all the people who are there. But the two other things I would want them to experience are, of course, the food, food that is very kind of local Hong Kong food, and then the food I think I would prefer the Chinese regional food, and then the other part of Hong Kong that is so near and dear to my heart is how beautiful it is. I have really good memories of going to school in Hong Kong, eating, going just like exploring, hiking. I really like hiking and 
being outdoors. And I think Hong Kong is a great city where you can be outdoors pretty immediately. When, when we did have friends come with us to Hong Kong, I always love to go on long hikes with them because mm. it really defies their expectations about what Hong Kong is. Mm. That it's full of nature, full of people who love nature and full of people who interact with nature in just, you know, interesting, lovely ways. You know, you, you're living off the water. You're surrounded by it. And even though there's so many complaints about, you know, the reclaiming of the harbor and stuff like that, there's still quite a bit of uh, respect, I think, for, um, for all that nature offers. It's so dramatic, you know, the vistas. And my favorite comment when we, I was hiking with these friends, actually from New Haven, who came to um, Hong Kong, she was so delighted because at the end of our hike, she goes, and you can get Chinese food. I don't think that that the idea that I am Asian American um, is all constantly being expressed in you know daily life or daily conversation. But this is the body I live in, and this is the past that informs my present. So I definitely do see um, uh, Asian Americanness as being more dominant than a kind of more broad notion of American. I found myself many times being the only non-Asian person in a room, for example, that's been a part of my life. And I think what it's brought to me is a better understanding of what it's like to be the only person of color in a room of people are all Caucasian. It allowed me to, to gain a frame of reference, not a complete understanding by any means, but a frame of reference of what it's like to be a bit on the outside in that way. So I, I think I consider myself to have gained some understanding and appreciation, but I, I don't think I would ever say that I was Chinese American or Asian American. I don't see myself as an American. I see myself as a Hong Kong a Taiwanese person. The fact that I hold an American passport says very little about how I grew up. Um, and identity-wise, I've never felt very American. I know enough to know that it's not real. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I just mean, I think that the American dream is something that was maybe true for a generation, and I don't know that it's true anymore. I think the idea behind the American dream partially is like, if you have the ability and the willpower and the ambition and the desire, you can do anything. And I don't think that's true. Like, I think you can have the ability, the desire, the, the, um, the motivation, you know, the hardworking spirit, um, the support, and you can still not make it because there isn't enough opportunity for everyone anymore in this country. Um, 
especially if you're coming in as an immigrant, there's just so little space. You know, the funny thing about the American dream, at least in terms of my generation, is that it wasn't our dream. It was our parents' dream. You know, it was a, it was a uh, an idea that was in their minds, not us. We are the beneficiaries of the choices made as a result of this notion or this myth. But if you were to just use sort of raw data, like, you know, economics, security, uh, health metrics, and that sort of thing, I would say in many ways, yes. You know, the funny thing, though, is that both my younger brothers who grew up just like me in San Francisco, went to college in the U.S., both of them went back to Asia to work in the late 90s. One of them never came back. He is now um, in Tokyo with a large family and his own business. And, um, you know, he's never hasn't lived in the U.S. since he was in his early 20s. My other brother, the youngest, he worked in Asia for many, many years in Hong Kong and then Taiwan and then back in Hong Kong. Um, and he only just recently uh, left to come back to the US, but now there's talk within his company about going back to Asia again. So um, I think the American dream is was realized in many ways, if you're going to just look at sort of those metrics that we talked about. But it's complicated because my brothers aren't really in America. You know, they're international, um, as are, are many of my cousins, you know, who um, went to Canada and, and at, around the same time, you know, they go back and forth. So social mobility and financial stability, yes. But geographic connection to the idea of um, American exceptionalism, I'm not 100% sure. I hesitate a little bit because I think, I think the general definition for me is like the rags to riches story. Some starting with nothing, you know, and then, and, and then finding yourself into the inner circle of wealth and success and power. And I think that is true. I think that's the trope of the American dream. I wonder I wonder if the American dream is something that you have to start at the very bottom for, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say that. Well, let's take let's take it this way. So like neither of my parents have college degrees. My family before my grandparents are, are all farmers, uh, small farmers. My mom grew up milking cows before going to high school. and then she was the only one of five kids to move off of the farm and she got a a, a community college a, a two-year degree in nursing moved off of the farm moved into the city nearby greensboro north carolina met my dad who was at the time living in a cabin in the woods that he built with his own hands and he was driving an ambulance and they met and together the two of them moved us into a two bedroom house as a, as a family of five and me and my dad built onto the house and we ended up all having our own bedroom 
by the time I was age 12. And then I never went hungry and I was, I was surrounded by love and I never went without anything, anything that I needed. And a lot of people would say that is the American dream. certain experiences that she has that are uniquely Asian that I don't have like that I like um like there there are uh I mean I, I know this was something that you're going to hit on later um but like like there are times like walking down the street or going to the grocery store with her where you know people people give her a hard time in a way that I've I've never had to deal with before and just seeing that and, and moving through the I think there have been a lot of hate crimes against Asian people, particularly Asian women. Um, and I think a lot of it comes obviously from geopolitical stuff going on, but also COVID. And I've never been physically attacked, but I know a lot of people who have been. Like I, I've been to a couple self-defense classes with other Asian women who have been punched in the face just walking on the street, um, been, you know, punched in the face and told to return to their country or whatever. Um, I've been told to go back to where I come from. I've been told, I've been, people have said things to me on the street for sure. Um, in New Haven? Yeah, in New Haven, in New York, both. Um, and I've never felt physically threatened, but I know a lot of people who have. Um, and it, I think even if it hasn't happened to you, um, I think the fear of it happening has been pretty tiring, I think. And I think is one of the reasons why, you know, like, I don't know, I, I think I've become more of a hermit in the last two years, obviously because of COVID. But, you know, hate crimes are a deterrent, definitely, of going out by yourself or late at night and kind of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, someone I know was spit on um, and... You know, for me, it's less hate and more just, you know, horrible, you know, um, uh, chatter, you know, like, hey, uh, when sometimes, you know, you walk down the street and some horrible person would be like, ni hao, ni hao, you know, just <laughs> to the women. And it doesn't feel respectful, obviously. Yeah. So there's that kind of stuff. Um I mean, it's horrible reading about it in the news, and it's been dreadful the last few weeks. Um, and I think that in many ways that might have informed my answer to your earlier question about do I feel more American or more Asian American. Right now, my personal anger at this trend has made me identify even more strongly with mm. that part of my heritage. Because mm. to the rest of the world, that's what I'm going to look like, you know? And if I were to be a victim, God forbid, of any, uh, you know, crime or incident, that might be a factor. I've always kind of assumed that the hate wasn't, was self-hatred in a way, being expressed in this, this awful and, and tragic way. Because it, 
it always seemed to me that the perpetrators have, have very little understanding of the object of their hatred and maybe purposefully so, right? They're uh, not allowing themselves to see the humanity in some kind of otherness that they perceive. I think people who, who have that resistance need, and this is part of why I do the work that I do, need more firsthand exposure and be not so tied to rhetoric that they're looking at and hearing and, and believing. Um, and I think when you break things down and have um, people talk to each other, um, I, I, I think that people to people firsthand understanding and conversation is so important. I also think it's important to do it when people are younger. I think exposure at a younger age um, really is transforms world views. I mean, I think there should be more legislation around it. I'm not, I'm by no means <laughs> a legal expert, but I do think that like setting a precedent for like what happens when hate crimes happen um, is helpful that you can't just do those things. <laughs> I also think like the way that the news portrays Asia or portrays China um, has a big effect on how people in society view Asian people around them. Um, it's just one of those things where like, and this goes back to what you were saying about Asian American identity, but if you're an Asian American who has never even lived in Asia, who is, who's not Chinese, like being told to go back to China is such a silly thing. <laughs> I mean, it's awful, but like, you know, when people say to me on the street, go back to China, I'm always in my head, like, I, I'm not from China. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's so ignorant. Um, and it, 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 it just goes to show how uneducated a lot of people in this country are about the complexity of what Asian is. Uh, like, you know, much less Asian American, which is even more com complex, I think. And like, I, I just don't, don't think people know the history of what it means to be from different parts of Asia. Um, because the term Asian and Asian American is so broad. And we don't talk enough about like, you know, the subcategories and that kind of thing. And do you think it will get worse or do you think it will end one day? Oh, maybe one day after I'm dead. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think there are a lot of things that I'm like, I think these, I think there are a lot of things that I feel like need to change that um, will change, but probably generations from now. Um, I just think that change comes pretty slowly, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. It just means that it comes slowly. I mean, I guess I, I can only think about what I actually do say to my own children, which is that the world's really big and it's constantly changing. And mm -hmm. um, the more you can be sort of flexible with the idea of what you think is immutable in your culture or in your society, I think the better off you'll be. And to, to really believe that 
you can make change. The passage is brought to you by Holosai, with special thanks to Patrick Ball, Stephanie Ko, Jenny Chen, Leslie Stone, Dora Go, Gigi Wong, Sunny Liu, Rebecca Sasberg, Asian American Culture Center, and Yale China Association. Thank you for listening.